This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Today, going to be taking a look at some of the untapped opportunities for agritourism in parts of Western Australia and really honing in on the southern wheat belt to see what sort of opportunities are in that part of the state. Also today, the CPH Group has shifted a record amount of grain in the last year, up 2 million tonnes on the previous record. So today, just after half past 12 today, you'll catch up with CBH's Chief Operations Officer Mick Dorr, who's going to explain why that's good news for the price WA farmers will get for this season's grain. You know, we're looking at a 5.5 million tonne carry at 1 October but then, you know, another million to million and a half of movements, which will bring that down to, you know, somewhere around four million tonne by the time harvest kicks in with the crop size you just said, you know, should should give us a task that is uh, well within our capacity that we're going to offer to the market. So that allows those prices to come back to, to normal from a zone point of view. McDaw along just after the news headlines at half past 12 today. It is six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Pilbara pastoralist Michael Thompson says the cattle industry is on the brink of disaster, with authorities now a month into the process of trying to prove to Indonesia that Australia is free of lumpy skin disease. As you know, in late July, Indonesia suspended four Australian export facilities from sending livestock to the country after claims 13 cattle were found to have LSD. Australia's chief vet, Mark Shipp, says LSD has never been detected in Australia and the country remains free of the livestock disease. In fact, Australian authorities maintain the cattle found to have LSD in Indonesia picked up the disease after arriving in the country and have been testing cattle in the facilities to reassure Indonesian concerns. Michael Thompson owns Mandibul and Ghana Station in the Pilbara. Michael, what impact is this LSD situation having on the northern cattle industry? Oh, I think it's it's just it's not just the northern cattle industry. I think it's building down through through everything to do with uh, cattle throughout Australia. It's just you're starting to see it rear its ugly head. It's just there's just no confidence at the moment, and that's starting to filter through on all the sales. For females, there's probably a, the market for females is just basically collapsed at the moment, much the same as sheep did with the talk of the ban of live export. Generally, the lack of information coming through to pastoralists is also causing a lot of anxiety. We feel like we've been abandoned by the government. I think when... Albanese got into government, he said he was going to work for the whole of Australia. Well, it, it feels like he's forgotten some people at the moment. And um, I just wonder why such a high-level risk to so many people, um, he's not on an aeroplane and meeting his counterpart in Indonesia to find out what, what is the problem. I mean, our head vet, he has said we don't have it in Australia. Now, if we had it in Australia... 
we'd have to notify the World Organisation and handles diseases on on animal diseases. I mean, we don't have it here, so I don't know what the hang-up is. Like, Penny Wong, where, where's she? Where's Murray White? Why isn't he on planes flying into Broome and flying into Darwin and and reassuring pastoralists and farmers that the government are behind them? And, and um, once again, Jackie Jarvis, haven't heard from her. Um, Isn't this, with Indonesia uh, raising these concerns and and this discovery of lumpy skin disease with these 13 cattle going back to the start of August, I mean, don't we need to be respectful of that? If if Indonesia, one of our key trading partners, has genuine concerns, don't we need to respect those concerns and just, you know, I know it's frustrating because it's taking quite a lot of time, but don't we need to respect that and go through the, the process of the testing and getting all the paperwork together? Well, you'd wonder how it would take a month. If we had it in this country, I'm sure that we would have seen it before now. We're at the forefront of animal welfare in this country. If we had lumpy skin, the world would know about it. So what's going on, do you think? If it's not genuine concerns about lumpy skin disease, what do you think is going on here, Michael? Well, you could call the conspiracy theory in and say it's the payback for 2011 when the Labor government of the day then stuck it up the Indonesians in a week. Um, is it a payback? That's the rumour I'm hearing. Albanese would and his government would be the only ones that know if they've even picked up the phone or even... Look, when there's a disaster in this country, you see politicians want to get and get their picture taken, and, and, and they're going to do everything to help people. Well, I'm telling you, we're fringing on a disaster in the north, and you don't see any of them, not one of them. What stories so, are you hearing? What personal stories are you hearing, you know, from the people that you deal with, the, the different pastoralists, the, the trucking companies, um, you know, all those people in that chain, I guess, who are feeling the consequences of what is going on now? What have you heard, Michael? I was jumping on a plane a week ago and I spoke to a guy that's got a few trucks. don't want to mention names. And um, he had 35 trucks tied up and devastated, absolutely devastated. So his business has come to a standstill? Yeah. Now, he employs people from New Zealand all over Australia to drive his trucks at this time of year because it's busy. I was talking to an agent this morning, just said that, his business, he's got agents standing around scratching their heads that work for him. You know, they've got families, they've got debt, what we all have in Australia. So it's just quite turning the tap off. But but how is that? Because the market is still open. The Indonesian market is still open. It's just these four export facilities across northern Australia that have been affected. So um, cattle can still go out of Broome, for example. Isn't that that still an option? Well, to give an example, 42,000 head of cattle have gone out of Broome this year. The equivalent time last year, 70,000. So where are those 28,000 going? They're sitting in paddocks eating feed that probably those fellows don't have the luxury of having all year round. You know, we've gone back to 2011. That's basically where we're at. I know that Nico both has stood up and said he'd have to start shooting cattle then, you know, 2011. I guess that... The daunting fact is that if we can't move them into Indonesia and we can't move them into another market, all the processes are, are full to the net. You know, they're, they're, they're in over their heads. They can't handle the stock they've got. I've been told we process about a, 
it processed about 140,000 a week. We need to process, and we're doing the work. Australia's doing about 118 at the moment, so they can't handle them. Does this situation so, just highlight that Australia is still really in the same situ- situation it was back in 2011 when the trade to Indonesia was, you know, suddenly stopped? In that. Northern Australia is still really relying on one key market, one key cattle market, which is Indonesia. Well, I guess the problem is the cost of employing people in Australia is through the roof because mining's just going so well and it's good for Australian economy that it is. And I don't want to see them fall over. But, you know, to match the wages that the mining sector can afford to pay, the rest of Australia is stumbling. When you consider that we've tried opening processing plants in Darwin and um, the one in the Kimberleys, they struggle because of the cost of labour. So to actually box beef uh, economically and sell it into a world market that don't have the high wages that we do, is it's, it's highly competitive. It's a commodity. It's traded all over the world and it's processed a lot cheaper than Australia can process it for. Where we do have an advantage going into Indonesia and a lot of those countries where labour is cheap is that they can actually feed our cattle, get them up to a, uh, to a weight where they can process them and do them at a cheaper rate and a lot cheaper than Australia can do it. If the wheels fell off mining and the wages got back to, to reality, and hopefully that doesn't help happen for the Australian economy, well, then we'd probably be able to be competitive going into an Indonesia with box beef and other countries. But at the moment, we're not. Linda, and that's been found out by the people. How many times has the Kimberley processor struggled? The one they opened up in Darwin is shut down. If we don't have lumpy skin disease, why in a month have we not freed up trade and um, started to allow these four yards to be used again and then start getting getting on with business? I don't know. That's something that Albanese or Penny Wong or Murray Watt need to tell the parcelers where we're going with all this. If there is a rift between our government and Indonesia, we'll come out and say it so we can start to plan aware. But um, at the moment, you don't hear a word out of them. I think everyone in, in the north of Australia and anyone who's involved in agriculture needs to know when something like this disaster happens, we need reassurance. We need to know that the government is standing by. They, that's what we need. We need uh, Albanese to get up there and his government to say, well, we're behind you. We've, we've got to look at how can we help you people? You know, what do we need to do? And go to the north and see it firsthand and speak to people and, and reassure them that they're working with us. We're a team. You know, we're part of the Australian scene. Where's our government when we need them? I don't know. Lost. They're not there. Michael, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Belinda. Michael Thompson. He's from Mundable and Gunner Station in the Pilbara. On the text, this from Cole, the Michael Thompson anti-ALP conspiracy hour. Uh, you can be part of the conversation too. The text is 0448 It is 16 past 12. I did contact the Agriculture Minister Murray Watts' office this morning and a spokesperson for the minister says, Australia remains free of lumpy skin disease and our officials, our Australian officials, are working around the clock with Indonesia to resolve this technical issue as quickly as possible. 16 past 12.
Some very relaxed bulls just chewing their cud after a long journey to Fitzroy Crossing, 400 kilometres east of Broome in WA's Kimberley. Now, the bulls are here for the Northern Cattle Industries 17th Fitzroy Crossing bull sale this week. And some of the breeders, some of the bulls have travelled more than 4,000 kilometres across the country just to get to the big event. Last year was the best sale on record. But with tricky market conditions, as you've just heard from Michael Thompson, uh, Ken Bryant from Northern Rural Supplies says they're anticipating that this year is going to be a smaller sale. About 170 odd uh, bulls on offer, varying breeds. All breeds are covered from Droughtmaster to the Grey Brahmas, the Queenslanders, the Sharbrays, the Red Simbrays, Red Brangus and Red Brahmins. Uh, the sale will start at 10am and they represent about 15 different breeders all from Queensland that have made the journey across. And can you tell me, last year would have been in a pretty incredible year to see this sale go ahead. Can you tell me some of the stats that you're going off from last year? Yeah, last year was our best year sale. We averaged about $6,700 and uh, top price at that sale was about 15000 So uh, we're hoping for the same this year, but we're expecting it to be a little bit less due to a few things out of our control that's happening in the industry at the moment. Can you talk me through some of those factors that might influence the market this year? Yeah, and there's, bit, there's a lot of nervousness about the lumpy skin and where that's going to lead to over here. Exporters are struggling to move cattle overseas and a lot of our client base that'll be at the sale have got a lot of cattle parked up that aren't sold yet that are normally sold by this time of year and we're on a falling market as far as prices goes. Steve Farmer you're over here from Rockhampton in Queensland can you tell me what bulls you're bringing? Uh, so this year we've got uh, 15 uh, sale bulls, Dreadmaster bulls on offer. Um, yeah we've been uh, coming for uh, f- 15th year I think for us, 17th year for the actual sale um, so yeah looking forward to another, another solid sale over here. With those market factors that Ken just spoke about, do you think that breeds like Drought Masters will be a bit more appealing this year for their, I guess, their accessibility into national markets as well as international markets? Yeah, well, I certainly hope so as a, as a Drought Master breeder, but, um, you know, it's uh, universal enough that we, as we've seen in the last couple of years, we've um, um, got um, plenty of cattle have been able to run back to the east um, as well as exports. So they've got that diversity um, in, in what they can do and as well as run into those southern markets, feeder markets. Knowing what the national herd's doing in that it, it reached sort of peak of the restock phase earlier this year and is now looking towards destocking, how do you think that will influence this sale? Uh, probably certainly over east we've sort of seen that you know people definitely have got up to their to their full numbers and that um, but I'd probably expect a little bit over here with uh, some of the female lines particularly being a little bit more difficult to sell um, and, and plenty of feed around there's probably a fair opportunity in, in keeping some of those females and, and joining them um, and then looking to market them in another 12 months time um, as joined females because uh, so by all accounts the, the uh, predictions are that the market should be pretty strong again next year um, so I think people will be looking to capitalise on that when they can. Is that something, Ken Bryant, that you're seeing over here, people holding on to some of those younger heifers because the market isn't doing great things at the moment and looking to join them? Yeah, I think people are still looking to get rid of whatever they can at the moment and obviously with the big wet season as well, they're still counting their losses of what they actually lost and, um, and trying to restock a bit themselves. So the heifer market being hard, they're probably going to keep more heifers and 
and drop out some older cattle and to make room for these younger ones. So, yeah, I do agree, yeah. Back to you, Steve Farmer. As you touched on, you've been bringing your bulls here for the past 15 years yeah. of 17 years of the sale running. Why do you do it each year? Uh, to, to us, it's really advertising for the paddock bulls we do, but it's a, it's a central uh, place in the Kimberleys. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of big and, and very good ca- cattle operators up here. Um, that are basically able to see see the stock that we that we produce, um, and, and it's quite central then to to disperse bulls from here after a sale um, through all over northern WA and, and some into southern WA. Um, and in the past couple of years, we've actually sent some bulls back as far as Queensland from from here as well. Um, and yeah, it's good to, a good community and a good good location to to have a sale. It's an expensive trip when it comes to trucking those bulls over here do you find that it pays off when not just the bulls that you sell here but maybe the phone calls that you receive in the weeks and months following yeah it certainly does you know certainly coming over here there is a higher uh, freight cost uh, but a lot of the other selling expenses um, that we'd normally be used to over there, um, and, and particularly feeding expenses, we don't have anywhere near that over here. We, you know, we get to present the bulls in a more um, relevant con- body condition um, here than, than, than some of the probably more stronger feeding competitions you, you see in the east. Um, so overall expenses, it, it's probably less in some regards than what we do selling bulls locally um, but certainly that advertising for, for the paddock bulls and runs of paddock bulls um, you know it's very uh, cost effective for us for us to do it this way. Have you seen an uptick in interest over the past few years in some of those paddock bulls for breeds like Droughtmaster? Yeah there certainly has yeah and, and you know we'll probably have had some pretty tough years in, in terms of actually getting bulls here and due to COVIDs and, and, and BJD before that so um you know, each year we've had some some pretty tough things, probably the last five or six years, really. Um, but yeah, we've kept uh, we've kept persevering, and and um, you know we've been very well supported at this end by the producers over here, and I think they uh, they give us credit for the, for the you know what we've had to go through to get them here. And yeah, certainly when the when they need numbers of bulls and paddock bulls, they uh, certainly ring us and, and give us that support. And a good fun day on Friday, I imagine. It's a good fun uh, week, or almost probably three weeks by the time we get home again. So it's um, yeah, basically an annual holiday, really. So enjoy it, uh, and yeah, a lot of fun. Steve Farmer from SC Droughtmasters in Rockhampton, Queensland, speaking to Alice Marshall ahead of tomorrow's Fitzroy Crossing Bull Sale. Twenty-three past twelve. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. An update from the newsroom isn't far away, then off to the Bureau of Meteorology, checking those rainfall figures, and just before one, off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market. 24 past 12, just before the news headlines, heading to WA's southern Wheatbelt area, where apparently there is a lot of untapped potential when it comes to agritourism. Well, that's how Marcus Falconer sees it. He's the CEO of Golden Outback Tours. And he says the good thing about tourists is they bring money and life to rural towns. But not all farmers want to get into tourism. You know, part of the challenge will be, I suppose, persuading farmers and connecting with the agricultural sector um, to diversify to help produce and develop new agritourism experiences. So we've got a a more broader offering um, to offer potential visitors. What sort of demand is there for agritourism at the moment? Well, it's growing. Um, I think COVID might have been a little bit of a a reason for that, but 
there's a lot more discerning travellers and there's a lot more scrutiny, scrutiny, I suppose, around food provenance and people wanting to know what they're eating, where it's from. And obviously we're in a, you know, in a fantastic region here. There's a great opportunity for experiencing those different produce, but also... Also in terms of accommodation offerings, there's some, you know, really fantastic places to stay and some, you know, interesting companies are doing tiny homes on, you know, farm properties where people are looking just to get away from the bright lights of the big city and just to relax. So when you say agritourism is growing, by how much and in what time frame would you say? Um, it's, it's a growing trend. It's going to take time to develop new experiences i think one of the things that we spoke today was around working with what we've got and and collaborating better around what we've got and producing some new food and drink trails so that can be done relatively um quickly but we're we're definitely you know trying to leverage the fact that there's an increasing demand and that's been seen you know at a national level there's a national um agritourism strategy um that was released around 18 months ago as well what is going to be the thing that sets this area apart from others that you've already kind of got going? I think in, in this part of the world, I love the fact that there's towns relatively closely together. So you've got your Newdigates, your Lake Graces, your Narragans, your Dumble Youngs, which for me already, prov- there's some beautiful towns and they, they care about the experience they give visitors, which is really important when you go into town, whether how clean it is or the, you know, the interpretation that you've got around Lake Dumble Young. And I think that added to the, the produce around this part of the world. I think that's what makes it stick out. Marcus Falconer, he's the CEO of Golden Outback Tours, speaking at an agritourism event that was held near Cookeran, about 300 kilometres southeast of Perth. It was actually held inside Mary Nenke's shearing shed, and she is a big supporter of agritourism in the Great Southern. Look, I'm excited um, because this is the first time we've actually been able to sit down and talk about getting trails actually coming through the region. That's fantastic to have the Golden Outback here, listening to the people. It was great to have everybody feeding their ideas of what trails we could do because trails are important because you know yourself when you're going on holiday, you want some ideas. And if you've got to put the whole trail together yourself, you can miss out on things. Um, And, of course, we don't want people to miss out. We want them to actually enjoy all the things that are here because we don't just want them to come for one day. We want them to come for a week, you know, and actually experience what's here. So what sort of opportunity is there for people who do live and farm out here if there was to be a tourism boom? Well, if anybody wants to talk to me about it, I'd love to share it. I mean, we came to do um, yabbies because we needed the money to educate our children. So diversification is, is a big thing. It actually gives you several streams of income. One can go bad, uh, as we all know, and you know we've experienced that in the last few years with our yabbies because of the shortage of water uh, prior to that time. And then, of course, COVID affected our cottages, so we were fortunate that the years were good in growing grain. Uh, but, you know, it's a really great um, diversification uh, agritourism. What sort of limitations are there currently in the region that might need to change if there was to be more agritourism come through? Well, I think it depends on where you're located. I mean, the more isolated you are, the more challenges there are. Um, It was mentioned today, uh, the problem with getting enough labour out here.
That is Mary Nenke speaking to Sophie Johnson from their farm near Cookeran. And as Mary was saying, they welcome tourists onto their property. It's a grain, sheep and yabby farm. And I have had a great event. God, it's going back so many years now. Um, I can't even remember what the event was, but a beautiful setup in the shed at Mary's place. And yeah, she loves to have a party. It is 29 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Time for an update from the newsroom with Tabarak al In the headlines, a sitting member of the WA Parliament has told the District Court he genuinely believed admitting child sex allegations in a suicide note he sent to his wife would help his family. Upper House MP James Haywood is on trial, accused of indecently dealing with a young girl when she was aged between six and eight. He's described the allegations as absolute lies, but prosecutors say he admitted them in an email in 2021 in which he also says he was going to take his own life. WA's Energy Minister is calling for more help from the federal government to decarbonise the electricity grid in the state's Pilbara. Bill Johnston says good progress is being made in the energy grid, but further change would be helped by the Commonwealth's rewiring the nation's scheme, which offers $20 billion in low-cost loans to help develop transmission lines. And the intergenerational report says an ageing population, climate change and workforce shortages are just some of the areas governments will need to tackle in the next 40 years. The document provides outlooks on Australia's economy over the next four decades. In that time, the number of people aged 65 and older will be more than double, requiring an increase in care and support. More news at one. Thank you so much for the update, Tabarak. Appreciate that. 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Still to come, it's off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market. Also, Mick Dawes going to be along shortly. He is CBH's Chief Operations Officer. Uh, the co-op has been able to shift a record amount of grain in the last year. And that is great news for you if you are a grain grower and want to get the best possible price for your grain this season. Mick Dawes will be along shortly to explain that. And also taking a look at the opportunities to... Uh, export by air boxed or bagged lamb because there's some real opportunities there if Australia can increase its flight schedule into the Middle Eastern markets. Uh, That's not happening at the moment. There's limited opportunity. But if that was to increase, that would be a great market to explore, especially if we keep heading down this road of the end of WA's live sheep export industry. Matt Dalgleish along shortly to talk more about that. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Caroline Crow with you this afternoon. Uh, Caroline, tomorrow in the city, it's um, a beautiful burst of sunshine, 26 degrees I think Friday and Saturday. What's happening around the rest of the Southwest Land Division? Does it reflect those sort of temperatures and conditions? Yeah, hi, Belle. Uh, it definitely does. We're starting to sort of see some spring-like or trending into some spring-like patterns uh, with some troughs and some warm air and some gusty winds over inland parts um, at the moment. Uh, and so, uh, like you said, uh, 25, 26 degrees uh, over the next couple of days uh, in Perth. And um, so the, the high-pressure uh, ridge is going to be the dominant feature over the next couple of days, but then we start seeing that 
that trough uh, developed just inland from the west coast and get some northeasterly, northerly winds and bringing some warm air over a good part of the southwest land division. And we're going to see uh, warming temperatures, temperatures above average and like into the northeastern parts of the southwest land division, sort of into uh, the central uh, wheat belt. Uh, temperatures are potentially going to be 10 degrees, if not maybe a little bit more above average. So potentially um, getting into the low 30s uh, around Southern Cross and Beacon and up into Morrowa area and Mullawa. So all that area there is sitting around into the 30s potentially. So that's um, coming into Friday and even on Saturday, fairly similar and uh, for, into the weekend. And then um, Sort of, and then a little bit further southwest, uh, getting into um, sort of Lake Grace area is going to sit around 25, 26 degrees. And um, as you mentioned, around the Perth area, it's sort of that mid 20s as well, grading to sort of to the lower 20s as you get into the southwest. So definitely some warmer temperatures. And uh, what we will see is on the, um, as I mentioned, the northerly wind. So we could see some fresh and gusty northerly winds over the northeastern uh, parts of the southwest land division coming into the weekend. Uh, as that trough develops and then the trough will uh, move east ahead of a cold front and we'll see uh, those still at warm above average temperatures continuing but not as high as that trough moves east um, and we get a, a cold front approaching um, coming into Sunday. So on Sunday the cold front it is just a, a weak to moderate cold front at this stage. Uh, as it approaches it does weaken and slip away to the southeast. Uh, so uh, at this point, rainfall is uh, being confined uh, around from the about Lancelin to Bremer Bay, southwest of that line, with potential thunderstorms sort of a little bit further southwest, um, Mandra to Albany. Uh, anywhere northeast of that line is uh, unlikely to get any rainfall out of this cold front uh, as it moves through. And then that's on Sunday. And then on Monday, uh, remnants of the cold front will just bring some uh, light showers uh, to an area very similar. Uh, so next couple of days, warm spring-like conditions the cold front coming through on Sunday to the southwest of the Southwest Land Division and remnant showers uh, on Monday. And of course, you know, a lot of people are really looking forward to that little blast of sunshine in more metro areas, but I know that heat's not great for uh, the crops around areas like Mullawar, for example, some near grain fields. So they're pretty desperate for a drink and maybe they'll get a drop or two out of uh, that front coming through, fingers crossed anyway. Caroline, let's have a look further afield around the state, northern and eastern parts. How's it looking? Yeah, it's very, fairly stable conditions uh, through northern and eastern parts, Bell, and it's really going to continue uh, through the outlook period as well. So there's a strong high-pressure system over uh southeastern parts of the, the country and um, it's holding a, a fresh, dry, gusty southeast to easterly wind over northern parts of the Kimberley into the Pilbara, getting into uh, the interior um, over the next few days. So it's going to continue to be windy through the outlook period, above average temperatures, so warm, a little bit warmer than above average for uh, the north of the state. And then as you start getting into the Gascoigne, uh, very similar conditions. Uh, the winds are a little bit lighter coming into the Gascoigne and then uh, clear and sunny and warm for the uh, remaining parts of the interior and into the goldfields for the outlook period as well, Belle. And Caroline, any warnings this afternoon? 
Currently, the only wind warning that we've got is a coastal wind warning for the far north of the Kimberley, just in a southeasterly burst. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Richard Hudson here now, taking a look at the rainfall results. Yeah, and it's a very similar story to yesterday. So a fair few locations in the state's southwest received one to four mils, but nowhere recorded any more than that. And in fact, outside the southwest, there was no rain recorded at all. But um, I do have some grain news. In the last year, the Cooperative Bulk Handling Group has managed to move a record amount of grain through its supply chain. So I know, judging by the texts that we received last year, that's going to be pretty good news to growers who might have been a little bit frustrated with the situation in the last few years. Some weren't able to make the most of the high international prices because basically the grain was stuck in upcountry bottlenecks. Mick Daw is Chief Operations Officer for CBH, so that's WA's main grain handling body. And he says when it comes to freeing up the supply chain, they're well ahead of where they'd hoped to be in the lead-up to this season's harvest. We've had a great few months and, you know, with record seasons, you know, for us to, to get the tonnes out, we have to have to sort of do record months uh, on our on turn, which we have done. And hot off the press, we've just moved 20 million tonne out of the system for the, uh, for the financial year, so that's one October you know, which is through to the end of September. So we've still got, a, you know, some six weeks to go in that as well. And, yeah, so we've just uh, this week gone past 20 million tonnes. So, you know, that's well in excess of what we've uh, what we've achieved previously. I think it was about 18 million tonne was our previous best for for a whole year. Um, and uh, and we've still got some to go. So we're, you know, the, the supply chain has performed extremely well. And, you know, big shout out to all the people involved, you know, our, our contractors, and more importantly, our staff, you know, have done a, done an amazing job in being able to do that. And, and like you say, it has done a lot in terms of reflecting prices and, you know, getting that balance back across zone differentials and those sorts of things. And, you know, we believe it's created a huge amount of value right across uh, WA. Even though this year's crop doesn't look like being a record, it's not small. I mean, you're talking 17 to 18 million tonnes is, is still the, the forecast, isn't it? Well, what's going to be different this year where you can reassure growers that there won't be those upcountry network issues? Yeah, well, again, I think um, with, with the amount of tonnes we've been able to move and what we've got forecast uh, in front of us and, you know, one of the good opportunities we've got is October shipping as well for, for old seasons crops. So that's, uh, you know, we're looking at a, you know, five and a half million tonne carry at one October, um, but then, you know, another million to million and a half of movements which will bring that down to, you know, somewhere around 4 million tonne by the time harvest kicks in with the crop size you just said, you know, should should give us a task that is uh, well within our capacity that we're going to offer to the market. So that then, you know, allows those prices to come back to, to normal from a zone point of view. So that's that's what we would expect. Obviously, the market will determine that, but that's, um, you know, well within um, the parameters that we, we think should bring back some normal pricing. A few months ago, CBH announced that spending $400 million on new locomotives and wagons, so upon completion, your cooperative fleet size is, is going to double. What's the update on that? Are you, are you starting to get those built? Yeah, so lots of work. Obviously, uh, most of it's in, in the design stage. So there's, there's sort of three components to it with uh, standard gauge locomotives, obviously narrow gauge locomotives and wagons, and uh, each one of those is... Uh, Sort of on its own flight path, but a, a lot of um, you know a lot of the design and meeting all the specifications is underway. And you know the team have been in China recently looking at the uh, at the wagons and doing some work on those. 
uh, late next year is, is when we expect some of the wagons to come in as a trial. Yep. So those 17 narrow-gauge diesel locos getting built by the US company Wobtech, is that how you pronounce it, Wobtech or Webtech? Webtech. Webtech. Yep. The wagons that you mentioned, though, getting made by the Chinese company uh, CRRC Mission, you've copped a bit of flack from that. Is there any reason why you didn't try to get those wagons made here in Western Australia or Australia? Yeah, look, it was just about um, the delivery of those and, and obviously uh, – the ability to, to get that amount of wagons made in the in the time period that we're after. Um, you know, the supply chain in China is able to do those in, in a short period of time um, and deliver them within that period that we're after. And, you know, no other wagon suppliers were able to do that. And we, we sort of went worldwide in that search to, to find somebody that could deliver on our timeframes and, and they were the ones that were able to meet that. It's a big spend, isn't it? Four hundred million. If we go into a poor season or a couple of poor seasons, I suppose some farmers might be wondering if their costs are going to go up and then you, you really feel it in those poorer seasons. How difficult is it trying to get that balance right? Yeah, I guess that's, uh, you know, part of our strategy is is sort of setting our sights on that, um, you know, 10-year horizon where we believe that the crop size is going to be an average of 22 million tonnes. So if we're, uh, you know, we believe that that's the case, then we've got to set ourselves up and plan for that. So, you know, we understand that there will be some season seasonality amongst that, but uh, you know what we've seen in the past few years and the and the size of the crops that we've experienced in the last two years, we believe that that's not a it's not abnormal. It's going to be what we what we have to deal with going forward. And to do that, we have to make sure we've got the resources um, available and ready to to be able to cater for that. Otherwise, um, you know, again, we'll we'll miss opportunities that we've probably missed in the last couple of years um, if we if we don't sort of back ourselves in. How long do you think it'll take for those new locos and wagons to be a built and then be actually operational? Yeah, so sometime in twenty five, we should have most of it here. I think from memory, Richard. Um, yeah, so we should, you know, start to see bits and pieces coming sometime next year. Like I said, with some of the wagons, and then some of the locos will start to be delivered in not too distant future. Uh, yeah, not long after that. Also, a recent announcement, Mick, was you're putting LED beacons on all your locos, old locos and new ones. Was that a no-brainer? Uh, look, it, it might appear to be something that's a pretty simple fix. Um, however, you know, we've made sure that we've we've taken a lot of time and you know made sure we haven't introduced any new risks in this space. And you know, it's it's probably taken a lot longer than what people may have thought. Um, but we've we've done a trial and and we've received a lot of feedback along the way from from various different stakeholders in this. And you know, we're now confident that the the lighting system that we uh, that we are going to introduce won't introduce any more risks and will meet the sort of requirements that we've set out to do, which is make sure that the locos that um, level crossings are a lot more visible and uh, yeah so so we'll, we'll roll that out and start putting that on um, our existing fleet and, and like like you said on the new fleet we'll also come out with the same uh, same standard once they they come out as well. So are you saying there was a delay on that initiative because you did have concerns I mean the, the positive is anyone will be able to see those locos coming that much easier the disadvantage is is what? Yeah so some of the, some of the things that do pop up you know obviously we had feedback from drivers who are saying some of the lights were too bright we had you know feedback from residents in built up areas where you know the flashing lights were were a concern uh, for them you know where they were close to some of those level crossings um also you know approaching vehicles were saying that um the flashing lights on the running boards on the side were distracting as well or if you're you know running adjacent to tracks those sorts of things so we've 
we've had to um, angle those down and stop them from flashing and have them uh, so they're they're sort of on constantly those sorts of things so I guess when you introduce something new you got to make sure you you sort of follow proper trial and, and get the right feedback before you uh, go ahead and roll it roll it out across uh, across all your fleet and, and we've done that and, and confident now that the, the fix we've got is uh, is a good one let's hope they work for everyone and good luck with the rollout of all that new infrastructure and thanks for your time in the country yeah no worries thanks Rich. CBH Chief Operations Officer Mick Dorr with Richard Hudson. Quarter to 12 here on The Country. Our few texts in response to that conversation with Mick. This from Michael in Wage, and I wonder with the supply chain getting back to normal, will farmers punish the grain merchants that profiteered off us last year? I think we can all say we are very fortunate we have our own cooperative. On a side note, glad to have you back on The Country. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's very nice to be back. Uh, this too, don't make me laugh. CBH should be ruining the fact they could have moved more grain if they had better communications and had better organisation. Trucks parked in line at ports waiting to unload due to poor logistics is not how you move grain. Instead of patting themselves on the back, they should be solving the same old problems the truck drivers have been telling them for years. Shame on you, CBH. Uh, This too from Peter who says, can be assured no bottlenecks, North Hampton, Una area. Banu is doubtful to even open. I am sorry to hear that. It hasn't been the season you'd dream of, has it, Peter? Thank you for the text. 0448 922 604 14 to 1. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, the federal government's recent rejection of an application from Qatar Airways to increase its Australian flight schedule appears to be a missed opportunity for WA's sheep meat industry. Agricultural market analyst Matt Dalgleish says Australia needs to significantly increase its air freight capacity to the Middle East if boxed or bagged lamb markets are to replace WA's live sheep export industry. Matt Dalgleish was contracted to submit an in-depth report on how the federal government's policy to phase out the live sheep export trade will affect the industry. He doesn't think there are enough air freight options to fill meat markets in the Middle East. Before we saw a significant drop in airline traffic you know, pre-COVID, if you look at sheep meat exports to the Middle East, particularly, it was very much kind of piggybacked on, on the back of domestic air travel. And so flights in, in, in and out of the Middle Eastern region, backwards and forwards between Australia and there, it was quite a um, convenient way to get box sheep meat product into the Middle East um, on the back of those airline, uh, airline flights that had passengers on them. Back in 2018, we were talking like 60,000 tonnes or so was sent every year, uh, or at least that year it peaked. Uh, whereas if you look to 2022, it's around 12 or 13,000 tonnes going now to the Middle East. And part of that drop-off in, in volume it has been, not all of it, but part of it certainly was because the capacity on airline traffic has um, has also been reduced and it hasn't recovered yet from COVID levels. So when you think about the current situation in WA where the, the federal government has said if it's re-elected, it would uh, phase out live trade, do you see that air freight sector as key to basically not filling the gap but helping to fill that market void? Yeah, it is. It's a fairly good alternative 
when you think of the type of carcass or type of animal, I should say, that goes live X in terms of those lighter weight merino uh, weathers that are turned off into the live X trade, they're a similar type carcass that goes as a bag product to the Middle East on air freight. And if we try a part of the solution, I guess the long-term strategy of phasing out live export, and, and that's been acknowledged by, by government and other officials and, and even the likes of animal rights uh, protester type groups that they say we should switch to box product of sheep meat rather than sending live animals. And so if we're going to do that, we need to have, make sure there is capacity uh, in terms of air freight to send to, to the Middle Eastern market. And, and obviously that would rely heavily on passenger flights coming in so that we can send product back. And there is demand for that there. There's still the pull for the whole carcass. It's just the, the freight that is the roadblock. Oh, I think, look, historically, if you look at the last few years, certainly COVID impacted that market. So there were supply chain factors. Also, the, the fact that we were going through a, a fairly significant flock rebuild and prices here were so high, both for livestock and for box products. So those factors also would have played out as to why um, there was reduced demand in that space and, and the ability to send. But now that we're back at more competitive pricing levels in Australia, when you look globally, our sheep flocks now nationally from 60 million head up to head, heading towards 80 million head, um, we have got the ability to, to turn off that more supply at a, at a cost-effective price. So getting the air freight market back up and running as it was, or at least trying to encourage that, would be part of a, a solution to provide other alternatives um, for the West Australian producer to, to send product into. There's also been a bit more of an efficiency gain in long-haul flights with, with a change to airline uh, or, or aircraft types. So the other aspect that I think is weighing on the lack of um, volume going from Australia to the Middle East is traditionally when you're going from Perth to, say, London or somewhere else in Europe, you'd need to stop over and often it was in the Middle East as a refuelling spot, whereas nowadays with the more efficient airliners that have just come up in the last few years, we were able to do a long-haul flight direct from Perth or Darwin to, to the UK and so we're, we're bypassing the Middle East as a, as a, as a potential short-term stopover point, which was allowing more freight to go into that centre. Matt, you were uh, part of a group that have re uh, prepared a report for the federal government regarding the phase-out of live trade, and I understand that you can't speak to the details of that. But I imagine in some of that uh, preparation of that report, you really would have got a sense of the state of the confidence in the sheep industry in WA at the moment. And I know I'm seeing things constantly about some really poor prices for young sheep. How would you rate the confidence that you're seeing in the industry at the moment? Yeah, I think it is driven from that very much. If you compare West Australian prices currently to, or at least in the last year or so, to the Eastern States ones, it's significantly discounted. And West Australia normally runs at a little bit of a discount, but some of the levels we have seen for categories of sheep and lamb has been the worst it's been, and, and particularly through the prohibition phase when live sheep is, is not operating through that Northern Hemisphere summer, the discount historically in the last few years while that's operated has got to its worst during that time. To my mind, there's a definite pattern to both this heavily discounted West Australian product coinciding when there's no live sheep exports and, and that, that is leading with, with the obvious, you know, the government are fairly clear in their decision to push ahead with a phase out and it's coming in the next election by all accounts, that's when they'll start it um, I'm led to believe, so that along with the, the very um, low priced environment in WA has taken a lot of the confidence out of the market I think Agricultural market analyst Matt Dalgleish from episode3.net speaking to Joe Prendergast about the sheep markets. 
Eight minutes to one. John says, if Qatar was allowed to replace the air routes that Qantas has exited, there would be a lot more access to air freight for lamb. Thank you for that, John. Well, speaking of the sheep and the falling prices and the surging supply, there could still be some long-term positives for Australia's sheep meat industry. That's the opinion of Rabobank analyst Angus Gidley-Baird, who points out if international demand increases, there's really only one country that can supply that sheep meat. It's probably one of those proteins that has has felt the impact of a slower economic environment a little bit more. And it's just because of that position in the diet where people don't feel like they're needing to eat it on a regular basis, so it becomes a thing that gets dropped. But overall, as an Australian market, it, it you know things are still looking very positive in terms of production growth. The challenge, I think, for Australia is about market development and how we can get the demand in those consumer markets to match the potential growth we've got here. And for me, that's the really exciting part for the sheep industry is that there's no other global supplier in the world that has the capacity to grow like we do. And if we can get this right, the markets like North America, China, the Middle East, India, and even into Europe with New Zealand production declining become opportunities for us to grow. So fundamentally might be a little bit more pain yet yet to come, it sounds, when it comes to prices. But you say there are opportunities. I'm assuming that's box-chilled trade and into some of those markets which um, traditionally are taking, uh, I suppose, or uh, are sheep meat eaters to a extent, as you said, yep. China with, with the Mongolian portion. But, I mean, where are those real opportunities that you are seeing, Angus? I suppose what I'm looking at is, you know, sheep meat, as we said at the beginning, you know, sheep meat's a very small part of uh, overall people's diet. And when you talk China and India and even North America, population size is huge. So the US lamb consumption, sheep meat consumption's 500 grams per person per year. So people have always said when I've made this comment, they say, oh, compare it to the old wool sock. Everyone get on, get everyone to buy another pair of woolen socks and we'll cure the wool problem. But it's a little bit the same. All we're really asking is that US consumer that might have one lamb meal a year to have two. And then suddenly we've got this volume that's needed in the market and there's no one else that supplies it. And New Zealand production is contracting. We're expecting that to continue with their um, you know, environmental regulations that are coming in and challenges with land use there. So any growth in global sheep meat demand really falls to us to be able to, to, to capitalise on that. And I think sheep meat's got a valuable position in, in the market in the sense that we've got the, the, the cheaper protein part of, say, mutton, etc., and then we've got the premium part of lamb and, and the ability to send different products into different parts of those markets to really sort of capitalise or leverage some of those qualities, I think, is, is, is ours for the taking. The markets, have they been developed enough? Is there enough infrastructure locally to process to be able to fill that gap that may be coming from the cessation of the live trade? There's always going to be challenges moving from channels and supply channels to, to other ones. There'll be adjustments and, and things like that. And And of course, you know, what does it mean in terms of the total numbers available? They're going to be different types of sheep. You know, it might be that, you know, we're suddenly having to deal with a lot more older sheep or, or maybe there are some younger lambs that hadn't been finished and 
does it mean adjustments on farm to to be able to finish them better or fatten them a little bit more and things like that but i'm really interested to to sort of see the next 12 months in in wa we've seen some investment in wa abattoirs recently so physically capacity might be there labor's always going to be a challenge you know you might have a plant but you've got to be able to run it and then obviously the market that it sells that product into and you know it's not a complete like for like swap in terms of sending a live product and saying well okay here's a box product to replace it that's it's not a substitution so there are all those things that have to work out i think there's there's still opportunities and i look at wa as you know a fairly large sheep flock and and things like you know the grain production business and the proximity to some of those export markets and think you know it could be in a box seat in terms of if we manage to cultivate that global demand for sheep meat you know it could be the the lead supplier into the middle east into india into possibly europe places like that we just got to figure out what that consumer wants and how we can produce it for them unlike the beef industry which possibly has a much brighter light closer to the end of the tunnel the sheep industry uh, from a sheep meat point of view it's a, a, a duller light and it's a lot further off this is going to be a process of of years of market development Rabo Banks, Senior Analyst for Animal Proteins, Angus Skidley-Baird, and he was speaking to Tara DeLangraft. Three minutes to one in just a moment. Off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. Accident or assassination, reports the head of Russia's powerful Wagner Group has been killed in a plane crash. Queensland government moves to use police watchhouses and adult prisons as youth detention centres. And where will the money come from? Australia facing tough questions about the future. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. We'll get to the news shortly in a couple of minutes, one o'clock, and then off to the world today. First to the markets and 256 head of cattle sold at Mount Barker today. So that is up almost 40 head on last week's sale. Tracy Kilner has been at the sale yards this morning. Hello, Tracy. How did it go? Trade cattle dominated, with steers gaining 20 cents, selling to 272 cents a kilo. The Wiener steers sold to 394 cents, and heifers gained, selling to 316 cents a kilo. Wiener steers sold from 344 to 360 cents, and the heifers made from 254 to 316 cents a kilo. Heavyweight yearling steers sold from 292 to 310 cents, and the lighter weights made 300 to 352 cents a kilo. Yearling heifers fluctuated with quality, selling for 230 to 270 cents for the heavyweights, and the lighter weights gained, making from 200 to 298 cents a kilo. Grind steers gained on demand with weights 500 to 600 kilos, returning 220 to 272 cents. Grind heifers sold for 235 to 282 cents for weights under 540 kilos, while the heavyweights were up 20 cents, selling from 230 to 260 cents a kilo. A line of Angus grown heifers sold to restocker for two ninety two cents a kilo. Heavy cows made from one hundred and sixty to one hundred and eighty cents to ease, while the heavy bulls sold from one fifty eight to one hundred and eighty cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through those details. We'll get to the one o'clock news shortly. Just a little preview of tomorrow. Going to be speaking to Michael Lamond. He is the crop author with the Grain Industry Western Australia Crop Report. And just to go through where Western Australia is sitting right now 
in the lead up to the harvest this year. I think the the weather's taken a couple of million tonnes off the total. We'll get all the details with Michael Lamont tomorrow. News time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.